Welcome to Project Geospatial, where we explore the intersection of technology, geography, and innovation. I'm the host of this segment, Adam Simmons, and in today's episode, we're excited to welcome Dr. Andrew Euclid, a renowned neurosurgeon based in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Euclid has been at the forefront of medical innovation using stereotaxy to map the brain and perform complex surgeries with unparalleled precision. As geospatial professionals, we're always interested in exploring how our work intersects with other industries, and the field of medicine is no exception. In this episode, we'll be discussing the fascinating overlap between geospatial technology and the latest techniques in stereotactic brain imaging. Dr. Euclid will be sharing his insights into the use of stereotaxy in the medical field and how these cutting-edge technologies are enabling us to better understand the brain and treat complex neurological conditions. So whether you're a medical professional or a geospatial enthusiast, this is an episode you don't want to miss. Join us as we explore the fascinating world of stereotactic brain mapping and imaging with Dr. Andrew Euclid. Thanks a lot, Adam. I, I appreciate being invited on. I think I think we have a lot to learn from one another and share. Again, my name is Andy Euclid. I'm a neurosurgeon in St. Louis. Uh, my particular interest in neurosurgery has to do with image-guided surgery or what we call neuronavigation. And neuronavigation is a, a field that has a long, rich history dating back into the 1940s, believe it or not. Um, the field has evolved significantly. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to take you briefly through a history of this strange word, stereotaxy, how um, it has evolved and how we use it today, both for commonly perform procedures and for more cutting edge things that are, are uh, um, going to be available in the future. As neurosurgeons, uh, we are humanists. We are uh, patient advocates. We really are guides uh, taking people on a journey uh, from point A to point B. Um, our patients appreciate the fact that we are uh, skilled navigators, that we've been here before. Uh, that we can walk beside them knowing confidently where we are and where we want to be. And so navigation as a neurosurgeon can take on many different meanings, uh, but we really do navigate uh, from one spot to the next, whether it is a clinical problem that requires the appropriate solution or uh, from pain to uh, well-being or from a disease state to remission. Um, but we need tools to navigate. And the, the most important tool in, in my field, which is called functional neurosurgery or neuromodulation, is this word called stereotaxy. And it really is literally how we as neurosurgeons get from point A to point B uh, within the body. It can be in the brain. It can be in the spine. It can be in the peripheral nervous system. And this word stereotaxy has, a, a, like I said, a long, rich history. And I'll, I would like to go back in time a little bit. Um, in the mid-1940s, neurosurgeons uh, had very rudimentary imaging, very rudimentary data sets. We were essentially using x-rays with dye inside of the brain uh, and the brain fluid to understand uh, what was inside this sphere that we couldn't really see into safely. Uh, in the 1940s, we barely had anesthesia. We barely had um, good antibiotics. 
getting inside of the the globe uh, safely, uh, whether it was to take a piece of something or to remove something, uh, was complex. And so we used, as most navigators do, basic concepts. Um, I'm sure that everyone uh, in the audience knows what Cartesian coordinates are. But, you know, mapping technology really it has to, you know, you have to define a, a, a space. You have to define a, 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 a three-dimensional space uh, somehow, whether it be north, south, east, west, uh, in our particular language, X, Y, and Z. Um, and that space needs to be defined by um, a reference. And that reference initially was an actual frame. A frame of reference was a frame where we uh, would define the the space inside the frame, uh, whether it was with uh, Cartesian coordinates like X, Y, and Z, geospatial coordinates, which are polar coordinates. And so many different types of frames were developed. And these frames all had different uh, reference markers and different ways of understanding the space inside the frame. So stereotaxy uh, really comes from uh, two Greek terms, uh, stereo meaning three-dimensional, taxos, touch, um, and it's the use of 3D coordinates, whether it be Cartesian or polar. Essentially, we uh, attempt to accurately and reproducibly define a precise volume in space. That's really what stereotaxy is. The easiest way that I explain stereotaxy to my patients, because everyone knows what GPS is, is a GPS for the head. Now, of course, it's not GPS for the head, but it's a similar concept. We are using external references and internal references to navigate inside of a volume that uh, we can't really go to uh, literally. We have to go to figuratively. Um, so GPS for the head. If, you, if there was one way that I would describe what stereotaxy is, it's GPS for the body. Um, really, stereotaxy in, in literal terms for us now is image guidance. And we use a data set. And the data set can be uh, any of a number of types of data, whether it's a CAT scan, which is a three-dimensional uh, picture uh, using x-rays of the uh, head or the spine, or an MRI scan, which again is a, a very fancy uh, representation of the body. Uh, that is in multiple two-dimensional planes, or a PET scan, which is a um, basically a, a, a data set that looks on at energy usage and oxygen consumption to figure out what parts of the brain are active and what are not. So if you can imagine a tumor that has a lot of blood flow, has a lot of oxygen consumption, and areas that don't have a lot of blood flow don't. So these different data sets are oftentimes used simultaneously and merged to help us navigate. Now we have to use reference points to merge these uh, data sets. Um, and so we have to take the data sets which are typically gathered preoperatively and merge them into and register them with the patient intraoperatively. This is the frame that I trained with. It's a frame called a Lexel frame. It's another Cartesian coordinate frame that uses X, Y, and Z. Um, if you look at me for a second, the right posterior superior um, uh, box point is, is defined in this as zero. 
So the X and Y and Z uh, zero point in this particular frame is in the upper right-hand corner. And we then image people uh, with these uh, different modalities inside of this frame. And that allows us to um, look at spaces inside the head with these three-dimensional pictures and have reference frame reference points so that every point within the volume can have an X, Y, and Z coordinate. And the applications for stereotaxy in neurosurgery are innumerable. I've listed some here. Um, the most common ones are uh, towards the top, image-guided brain surgery. So for example, I can know what is four centimeters away from me by looking at an image and taking a probe. Without seeing it, I can know how close I am to a big blood vessel or how close I am to a, the optic nerve or another big uh, cranial nerve inside the brain without having to actually uh, go and see it. And that's very valuable uh, so I can both go to where I need to go and stay away from high-priced territory. So we use uh, preoperative data sets. Uh, more modernly now, we're using intraoperative data sets. So we will take uh, a data set inside the operating room, whether it's with an intraoperative MRI scan or a CAT scan, to update the anatomy, to update what's inside the globe, because these things change. Uh, we can navigate, for example, spinal instrumentation. So a, uh, you know, a drill can be placed percutaneously into a bone uh, that is three millimeters in diameter with a three millimeter screw. Um, stereotactic radiosurgery, which is a um, uh, scalpelless surgery that, that uses radiation to uh, either uh, kill tumors or eliminate uh, uh, parts of the brain to change circuitry or to uh, eliminate blood vessels that are contributing to a vascular malformation. And I'll show you some pictures of that. My particular field is in movement disorder surgery, so deep brain stimulation, and I'll show you some pictures of, of how we use stereotaxy for that. Robotics is now uh, commonplace in all surgery, but particularly in neurosurgery, both cranial and spinal surgery, uses the um, fundamentals of stereotaxy to guide us within the brain and the spine. And now it's not just guiding us, but it's guiding robotics. Virtual reality for neurosurgery training, we'll talk a little bit about that so that we can work in the metaverse before we work in the universe. Um, uh, custom implants. Now we can create things with stereotaxy, um, such as uh, uh, bone flaps uh, and someone who's had a gunshot wound and needs a, um, uh, a, a created uh, piece of uh, hardware that is customized to them or customized spinal implants. Uh, finally, machine-based learning. All of this data is now getting entered into very large databases so we can take this information and improve iteratively what we do. Um, so this is a, you know, a picture of uh, the Gamma Knife machine. This uh, patient is being introduced into a, a field of radiation, which has about 210 beams of gamma radiation. And Gamma Knife moves the patient inside of this uh, radiation machine such that all of these points of conversion uh, will uh, eradicate the tissue um, uh, at the point of conversion of all of these beams, but the individual beams are, are fairly innocuous to the normal brain. And 
serotactic radius surgery is now used for multiple things, not just brain tumors, but to create lesions in the brain to stop facial pain or to um, uh, take away um, uh, tumors in the brainstem that are not operable open in an open sense. Uh, this is image-guided spine surgery. This is the uh, Mazor robotic arm. Uh, those little balls that you see on that star in the upper left are the reference marker. This is fixed to the patient. Uh, there's an intraoperative data set. And so you can use stereotaxy to guide this drill, as we were talking about, right to the right spot to fixate, uh, whether it be uh, the spine or the pelvis or um, uh, even, uh, you know, um, operations that remove uh, tumors. Well, we use this uh, within the spine. Uh, I think everyone remembers Gabby Gifford. Gabby Gifford, um, uh, the, I believe she was a, a representative or senator who had a gunshot wound. Um, she is uh, uh, the astronaut, uh, uh, is it Mark Kelly, I believe? Uh, so when she had her uh, gunshot wound, part of her skull was missing, and uh, the, the surgeons who took care of her recreated with stereotaxy a customized bone flap uh, that would fit perfectly mirroring the other side, the part of the, of the skull that was missing. So this is a cranioplasty uh, that was created with stereotaxy. My field has now uh, gone frameless. We no longer have a virtual box with computers. We now have a, um, um, a, a virtual, uh, we have a virtual box instead of a literal box. And so we have to have a preoperative data set that builds a computer model in the operating room. We register the patient uh, using a reference arc, which you can see in this uh, depiction um, right above the patient. There's a camera that, that both reads the instrument and the reference arc and uses that information to navigate um, the volume in front of us uh, that is uh, represented by an preoperative data set. Um, and there's that picture here. So uh, this is uh, now, remember I said I've gone frameless. Uh, using... Uh, fiducials, which are uh, implantable uh, markers that are put in the skull, we can now use a computer to guide us. Instead of having a virtual box, we'll have a, I'm sorry, instead of having a literal box, we'll have a virtual box. And these little screws in this skull are uh, skull-based fiducials. And I use these to create uh, a guidance platform, and I'll show that to you. So to do this, those external uh, fiducials are, uh, let's call them the satellites. We also need some internal points of reference. And so within the brain, we have internal fixed points of reference. Uh, this picture here is showing you these markers in the front and the back. And we use these markers, let's call this, for example, you know, Chicago and Cleveland. If we know where Chicago and Cleveland are, we can, with uh, you know, fairly uh, high accuracy, arrive at St. Louis by by triangulating its its uh, location. So we have both external reference points, which are these fiducials, and we have internal reference points, which are fixed spots that we know. And with this, we can be extremely accurate in our targeting. 
extremely accurate in our um, localization of where things are. On the left here, you'll see a picture, uh, a depiction of a two-dimensional slice of the of the brain, and the one of these reference points, the PC, and the other reference point, the AC, allow us to determine. Again, let's use Chicago and and uh, Cleveland as an idea. We know where a certain nucleus of the brain is based on their position with respect to those internal reference points. So this is called indirect targeting, and this is frequently used because these internal reference points are so reproducible from human being to human being. The distance between these two is 24 millimeters plus or minus one and a half millimeters. And so we can use the fact that we're all very similar uh, to help us with these internal reference points. Uh, the picture on the right is a, an MRI picture of the brain looking from the side, pretending we can look right in the middle. And you can see one of the reference points, the AC, and the other reference point, the PC. And we use that line between them to figure out where other structures are. Moving on now with uh, high fidelity imaging, we have now up to seven Tesla MRI scans. And Tesla is, of course, the gravitational strength of the Earth. And uh, these MRI scans are so powerful and so precise uh, that we can, with um, direct targeting, actually look at the target that we want to um, uh, approach, or uh, in this particular case, to put an electrode in. This, these circles here are called the red nucleus, and right in front and to the side of them is a tiny little almond-shaped nucleus called the subthalamic nucleus. That's the target that I put an electrode into for Parkinson's surgery. But I'm going to show you how reproducible this is. It may be uh, larger in your screen, Adam. Let me know. But in the upper left corner, we see um, a green line inside of a white um a bigger white line can you see that so the green line is the plan of where the stereotactic metaverse if you will uh preoperative plan wanted the electrode to be and i've merged a post-operative mri which uses density to the preoperative plan and you can see the white line and the green line are perfectly overlying one another can you appreciate that on the picture? Yes. I, want, I wanted to give people an idea of how accurate this is. It really is sub-millimetric. It's close to micro-metric, micro, uh, okay? So this is in surgery. This camera is following a, a, um, a probe. This is a patient, um, and we're aiming at the target, Okay. This is a, a robot, if you will. Uh, it's a microdrive, which advances micron by micron a small electrode into the brain. And we can use other information, other sensors, to help verify that we are where we are. Uh, this next picture is uh, using a technology called microelectrode recording. And essentially, all different parts of the brain have specific electrical uh, signals that are uh, known and reproducible. So uh, the picture on the left is the cannula that includes the microelectrode. 
And this uh, larger structure is the macro electrode, which we implant in the brain. If we listen high up, uh, we can hear what a part of the brain called the thalamus sounds like. If we go a little bit deeper and then we enter this target, which is this almond-shaped structure here, there's a very specific um, electrical firing pattern of this target that uh, verifies that we're in the target. And this is called the subthalamic nucleus. When you listen to this, it sounds to me like rain on a tin roof on a summer day. And, and then finally, when we're out of the target, we enter a different a part of the um, brain called the substantia nigra. And we know when we've left our target because it has a very specific electrical pattern. So we have introduced the concept of stereotaxy. We've introduced the concept of both internal and external reference points and the multiple different ways we can use these. Uh, I just wanted to close by uh, discussing a little bit about the future of neuronavigation. And I think our fields are converging. Uh, just today, I was looking at a system that uses uh, LIDAR to give us real-time um, images of the spine such that we can navigate in real-time. Uh, you know, right now we're taking points in time, but eventually we'll be able to navigate in real-time, almost like, you know, a camera going from point A to point B. We'll be able to navigate in real-time either by energy or by light or by some other uh, on uh, ultraviolet or some other unyet uh, utilized uh, energy to help us look in real time. Because right now, like GPS uh, on your Google Maps, <laughs> we're looking at pictures that were taken days, weeks, months before. Well, it's possible that the building fell down or the road was destroyed in that data set that's old. So real-time data acquisition is the future of neuronavigation. Implantable sensors for real-time uh, information. This is uh, in the field of cardiology, a uh, already a reality. People get implantable um, pacemakers. They get implantable monitors for their heart. That if an abnormal signal goes off, will notify a doctor. That same real-time information will be coming, you know, either passively or actively. Machine-based learning. We're still in the very early stages of machine-based learning. But in deformity surgery, which is spine surgery for either scoliosis or degenerative spine problems, is now going into a field of machine-based learning that uses stereotaxy both to place instrumentation and to correct deformities, uh, augmented reality. Uh, in training for neurosurgery right now, and uh, in many other surgical subspecialties, we are doing the surgery in the metaverse before we do the surgery in the universe. Uh, why? Uh, for practice, but also for learning and also for safety. Finally, uh, you know, the other uh, realities that are here because of stereotaxy, uh, the brain-machine interface. Um, so I, I, there's much more that I'd love to talk about. I, I know we only have a limited amount of time. I, I've wanted to share with you a trip that I just came back from to a very northern Canada in a place called Yellowknife Northwest Territories. We were seeing the uh, Aurora Borealis and the amount of data that was being applied through our cell phones to understand when we would see it, the satellite weather. Um, 
how strong it would be predictions through websites like um, spaceweather.com. All of this information is being sent to us uh, by our cell phones, by satellites, uh, reading energy levels, and it's being used throughout so many fields, not just neurosurgery and not just geospatial. All of us are using this information and it is becoming better and better and better and more predictable and more precise. And that's what, as a neurosurgeon, I need to safely take my patient from point A to point B to access something like a tumor, just to take a sample of it safely without disturbing a vital structure like a blood vessel or a part of the brain that uh, won't uh, um, uh, respond positively to being, to being manipulated. So all information is power. And we use this power to help our patients uh, get from one place to the next. Um, and uh, I think the, the parallels in our fields are, are um, incredible. I've learned just preparing for this talk so much, and I really look forward to, to learn, learning more from, from you. So thanks for the time. Well, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, so a couple uh, closing questions before we wrap up. Uh, you know, you know, just amazing to see how many sensors are applied for what you do to not just map the brain map. But, you know, I like what you talked about in the beginning where um, you're talking about as, as if you're just uh, you have to map the globe out. And, and you're not just mapping the globe out. You're actually map every every new patient is a new globe for you. You're literally mapping a new world every time you do that. Um, and we kind of take that for granted. We actually have the coordinates sets in the, uh, we do upgrade and maintain coordinate systems for the earth um, by tracking, you know, met, you know, magnetic interference, geodesies, one um, tectonic plates, things like that to uh, can constantly update our, uh, our perspective of the earth. But the earth is essentially one globe. You're doing this for, Every, a new patient every single time. I think the only equivalent that we have is mapping new planets. You know, applying a new coordinate system to uh, to to a new new planet where it's a different size than us and and uh, different shapes or mapping asteroids. So it's uh, it's fascinating. Fortunately, fortunately, from patient to patient, in normal anatomy, um, the similarities from person to person are extremely um, uh, uh, tight. There's, a, for example, the distance between our pupils uh, from person to person, that there's a range that's very tight. Those two points that we talked about, a millimeter difference over, you know, many of us. So it, the, what we're usually mapping, of course, is uh, abnormal anatomy, where something is there that shouldn't be. Um, and yeah, that that definitely does change. And But, but fortunately, anatomy is predictable. Uh, what's not predictable is pathology, and that's what we're mapping. Uh, but, you know, oftentimes patients with, for example, Parkinson's disease have normal anatomy. Uh, their anatomy is not the problem. It's their chemistry, uh, fortunately. So uh, because that's so predictable, we can modulate the nervous system because we understand some of the circuits, which are very basic and simple. Where we're really uh, advancing right now is in neural networks. Uh, that's the future of of our, our understanding of the nervous system. And where you're going to help us is uh, uh, with uh, microsensors that are going to allow us to look at energy um, distribution within um, the skull, within the brain, 
um, on a real-time basis. That's the, that's the aha moment that came to me, Adam, when you and I spoke last week. It's like, you know, you, you were using real-time sensors and updating things, not just with pictures, not just with radar, but with ultraviolet and in other yet undetermined ways of looking at things. And all of these things can give us a different, you know, I often tell patients that MRIs aren't pictures. And even pictures aren't reality. And it's hard for people to understand that. It's just a data set. You know, if if, uh, if there's a shadow over my face, I don't have a black spot. And people understand that. It's a flawed data set. And, and every picture, the every reality needs to be interpreted. Because if you interpret a reality incorrectly, well, you're going to, Go to the wrong place. In my field, you're going to hurt somebody. Um, or in your field, uh, you're not going to hurt the, you're not going to take down the, the bad guy. Um, or so, yeah, we have to understand that even reality has to be interpreted. There is not one reality. There's only our perceptions. So the, the more data sets that we can get, the closer we can get to real but you, we don't trust one data set. Uh, you don't trust one picture. And I'm sure in your field, uh, verification has to do with uh, having multiple data sets overlapping that verify that what you think is true is likely to be true. Uh, because otherwise, you'll you'll have you'll have dire consequences. But in both of our fields, absolutely. Uh, so, getting into some of the things you touched at the end, uh, where do you see? Uh, from what you've learned about the geospatial industry and different sensors, especially preparing for conversations um, from a cross-industry perspective that you're getting involved with, um, where, where what where do you see the most interest for yourself in saying, hey, we can apply this technology or they'd be kind of cool to explore this with the field that you're working in? Well, uh, you know, so we had talked about the idea of passive versus active sensors. Um you know, the word telemetry uh, takes on different meanings in medicine versus, uh, you know, geospatial. But telemetry for us is, is you know, getting some electrical feedback. For example, in the heart, telemetry is, um, you know, distance uh, measuring. And so telemetry for the brain doesn't really exist yet, but it will. Uh, there are now... Um, uh, EEG uh, wearable sensors. Uh, um, uh, there are now um, uh, magnetic um, data sets that come from um, um, a machine that allows us to look at magnetic energy within, inside the brain. And so as our ability to detect smaller and smaller amounts of energy gets better, telemetry is going to allow us to look both at normal and abnormal states in my particular field, um, uh, neuromodulation, we uh, now have the ability to have feedback loops where our implanted devices will sense a certain type of electrical activity and uh, turn on or turn off when that type of electrical activity is present or not present. So sensing right now is in its very, very early infancy but feedback loops and sensing are going to make our um, implantable devices more accurate, uh, both with respect to disease states and healthy states or on medication states and off medication states, such that the treatments that we do electrically um, can be managed 
by a computer. And right now, the, the generators that we implant for neuromodulation are very, very powerful computers that will sense and program themselves. Uh, incredible to think. I, I would never even thought about that when I started my training back in 1996. Uh, but we are going to places that, you know, uh, it, it right now we use a, a special kind of an MRI scan called spectroscopy to look at um, energy states within the brain. Right now it's in, an, in a very large machine uh, that allows us to look at things like, um, you know, uh, high uh, oxygen consumption, the PET scan that I talked to you about before. Uh, but SPECT scans can allow us to differentiate things and, and uh, having a sensor, an, uh, an implantable SPECT sensor, probably someday will be a reality. And that's sensor sending information back to an implanted grid on the brain or an implanted electron in the brain can be the difference between paralysis and, and movement. Um, right now, the brain-machine interface, which is being developed by uh, many neurosurgeons, but one neurosurgeon in particular in my city, has gotten to the point where uh, an exoskeleton can move an arm with the energy of the brain. Who would have thought that? It sounds science fiction. But all of this comes because of mapping, of knowing where things are, um, and then going into the unknown. Uh, I think that's the biggest the biggest excitement in my career is, is the unknown. Um, because we discover things uh, by accident. We discover things uh, that we, just by observation, that lead to something new. Um, and that's that's why I'm, I'm still very passionate about what we do. So touching on the metaverse topic just for a second here, uh, you talked about how in training you use virtual reality, right? Um, is, uh, can, you, can you walk me through that experience uh, for, for your career field and what's that like and how has that changed over the years and maybe gotten better or uh, how much, I'm sure there's always room for improvement, but how good is it compared to, to where that used to be? Well, it's still in its very infant uh, phases. Um, you know, DARPA was very um, influential to um, remote surgery. And it, we're now to the point where we can operate on uh, someone who is miles, uh, hundreds of miles away um, using a, a, a machine called the Da Vinci Robot. Um, that is for very particular types of surgery. It does involve technicians putting in, you know, pro things inside the body that then the surgeon who sits at a console uh, with uh, gloves and, um, and foot pedals uh, knows how to use. It's used in general surgery, in urology, in um, vascular surgery. Um, and now things like, you know, hernias are being repaired with the robot. Uh, all human beings are electrical. We all have tremor. Now, electricity uh, runs through our body at about five cycles a second. And so, uh, just like with cameras that eliminate um, uh, motion, these uh, robotic uh, um, uh, tools can eliminate human tremor. And so sewing with a microscopic needle that is, you know, smaller than a piece of hair is now easier with a robot than it is, uh, you know, with your hand because your hand 
you know, if you're tired, you're hungry, you're sick, uh, you're stressed, uh, everyone has tremor. Well, the robot will eliminate the tremor. So the, the, the you know, anastomosis, which is the sewing together of very tiny things, is now done robotically. Um, actually, you know, working in the metaverse, since it's not uh, functionally a real uh, thing, um, is going to be very difficult. Of course, people uh, who are paraplegic, as in the Avatar movie, uh, can have you know, a sense of motion and reality. Um, and that will be available, I'm sure, to our patients uh, within the next decade um, because it already does exist to a certain extent. Of course, we need sensors. So for someone to you know, be uh, living in a big blue body, <laughs> you have to have the feedback uh, now, wearing a helmet that gives your brain the sensation of motion, the sensation of touch, the appreciation of smell. I mean, all of these things are, uh, in my uh, opinion, going to be uh, available in, uh, in my lifetime. Um, the The speed with which things are developing is is logarithmic right now. Um, but you know, the actual what I do physically can only exist in, in, in reality. Um, and I, I, I won't be able to operate on someone in the metaverse and then have that, that avatar come back into the universe um, until we find a way to convert matter into energy. I don't think that's in my lifetime. Um, that's this, uh, you know, Star Trek um, type of technology, but but being able to uh, learn new things, you know, my wife is into virtual reality. She's a language professor. And now she takes her students to Rome. <laughs> they walk around the uh, forum. Uh, they talk to people in the metaverse. And they're they experiencing, you know, a, a semi-real environment uh, in the metaverse. That's mind-boggling to me. Um, and you can interact with other people. I mean, when I, I'm a cyclist, right? I use... The metaverse uh when i get on my zwift and i'm riding with people that are in uh you know switzerland and australia at the same time i'm seeing their avatar i'm chasing them down because you know all of their data is getting fed into this i mean it's incredible um so learning i think is 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 really the the place where neurosurgery in my lifetime is going to use the metaverse um maybe translating things that are impossible to things that are real by test stimulations and doing things um, uh, virtually first, I think could then be translated backwards. You know, trying things that would otherwise put people at, at harm uh, first in the metaverse and then bringing them back. Uh, maybe that'll exist when I, uh, while I'm still alive. But I, I think the possibilities are endless. It's left up to the imagination um, and you know, in closing, the one of my chairman's favorite sayings that you know we stand on the shoulders of giants. Everything that we are able to do now is because of everyone who was before us, and um, the people who will follow us. Hopefully, will stand on our shoulders uh, because what we contribute uh, is uh, permanent. It will be with uh, you know the humanity and whatever comes after. Um, hopefully. Uh, must be destroying uh, ourselves. And so, yeah, I feel like we're contributing to a body of knowledge that will live after us. And that's, that's, um, it's very um, satisfying.
Well, thank you very much. That's been awesome rundown of what you do, uh, mapping the brain out, uh, the history and overview of uh, Stereo Taxi. That was incredible. Uh, and you gave us great insights of where this uh, this field, this medical field is, and, and technology as a whole is heading. So I appreciate your time with us. And uh, we'd uh, obviously want to follow what you do and the technology that uh, you're tracking um, going forward. And uh, yeah, that's that's incredible. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, and uh, I, I, again, I'm going to learn probably more than I'm going to contribute. And I, I thanks for the um, thanks for including me. Absolutely. I'm Adam Simmons with Project Geospatial, and uh, we'll talk to everybody next time.